as we come together now around words of scripture, we do this every week. Sometimes maybe taking for granted that we do it at all. Well, we're a church, of course we read the Bible and we don't stop and in some way reflect on why this is so unique among all organizations, among all communities of the earth. When we gather as the church, it is around these words that are at the same time ancient and profoundly fresh and new to us. Perhaps I'm not the only one who, when coming to the scriptures, feels sometimes as if I'm reading them for the very first time. And that is the great gift of these, this treasury of words. There's wonderful meditation in the Psalms. I encourage you to turn to Psalm 19. And as we hear this poem extolling the glory of God's creation and its connection to the word of its creator, moving from the macro to the micro to people like you, people like me, like Bobby, and so many others, hear these words as if for the first time. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day by day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law, the Torah, of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. This psalm is a wonderful piece of poetry and with remarkable economy of language moves us 
from that place of wonder and awe when we simply stop for a minute and close our mouths, open our eyes, open our ears, and take in the magnitude of creation and the finitude of our lives. And as time has marched on, we have come to appreciate just how big the universe is. In planting telescopes out into orbit around us, we can see further and clearer than ever before. And what astrophysicists tell us is that probably all we can see is to the end of what we can see. And beyond that event horizon, there may be much, much more. We also have the capacity now, much more than the ancients ever could have imagined, to look at things in the micro. When we go beyond what we can see and what we can know and go to the cellular level, then the molecular level, then the atomic level, and then the subatomic level, we can still perceive the activity of creation in space and states of energy. And whether it is in that macro or the micro, there's a sense that it is being held together. It's a source of wonder. Who are we in such a world? The scriptures take us to that place of wonder at what is, to wonder about what God has done for us collectively and for us individually. And though it seems like it is not enough to be able to use one symbolic statement to capture it all, the scriptures turn time and time again to a single statement, and it is the word, word. Word. I once heard a rabbi talking about how in Hebrew, there is no distinction between the word that's used for word and the word that's used for thing. What we would call a thing and what we would call a word is all wrapped up in the same word in Hebrew, davar. And that gives us a powerful insight into the biblical mind, which is there's no such thing really as an idle word, that the words that emanate from our mouths or from the very life of God have power, they have significance, and they have substance. They're never abstract, but instead are somehow wrapped up in a reality or an action. And that sounds pretty obscure. So I want to tell you a couple of stories from the scripture that might help us understand the way that word and action and word and thing are rather connected and can't be separated. The first and one of my favorites is when we go back to the book of Genesis and we know the story of Jacob and his mother, Rebecca, tricking their father, his father, Isaac, out of the blessing that was intended for Jacob's older brother, Esau. Brothers then and brothers now are always scrambling for first place. 
and Jacob was always coming in second. And customarily, when it came time to divide up the family estate, it was definitely all going to go to the oldest brother. That's how things were. Everybody came to expect it. But Jacob was not satisfied with this. And so pretending to be his older brother by covering himself with more hair and sort of smearing himself with the smell of animals and all the rest, he brings his blind father his favorite stew and tries to pass as Esau. It works. And Isaac reaches out and with blind eyes, but sensing hands, touches his son, Jacob, and gives him the blessing that was intended for Esau. Now I just want to read the story so that maybe you can hear the real crisis that existed in the minds of folks. His father, Isaac, said to him, now this is Esau now, who's come in just on the heels of Jacob's departure. He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. And then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me even also, oh my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he's taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob, which can mean trickster? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And then, begging his father, he says, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him as servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, oh my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And in our modern ears, we hear this and we say, what's the big deal? Can't he just say, oops, my mistake, take a mulligan, we're going to have a do-over, I was wrong, now the birthright and the blessing are Esau's. That's how we think, because in some way, our intention and our motivation can be revised in such a way that we believe it can reroute the trajectory of the words that we've already offered. Somehow, we think we can revise the impact of our speech, but in, certainly in the Old and in the New Testament, there is a sense that you cannot put the toothpaste back in the tube. Or the bullets can't go back into the gun. Because words have real power. They have real significance. They can make entire worlds and they can break them down. Consider the prophet Jeremiah. When he speaks um, his prophetic word and he articulates God's calling on his life, he hears God tell him, See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Wow, 
What kind of position of political authority or military power is God going to put Jeremiah into? We actually find out in the verse before. All of this is Jeremiah's to wield because in verse 9, God says, I have put my words in your mouth. All of this is accomplished by words. So when we read the accounts of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, we hear God said. And it was. God said, let there be light. And there was light. The power of words to go to work. So when Isaiah sings, a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass and all their faithfulness, like flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. Holding all this, maybe we can hear Jesus' own sober warning in Matthew chapter 12. Verses 35 and 36, he says, A good person brings good things out of the good stored up in them. And an evil person brings evil things out of the evil stored up in them. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. As Christians, we gather around a very, spe whoops, very specific collection of words, words that are contained in the Bible, a treasury, a library in many ways of stories, of poems, of letters, of prophecies, of songs, many voices that speak up across many times. And the scriptures themselves have so many metaphors. We heard uh, Ted share one today from the letter of Hebrews that the word of God is a sword that pierces. From the letter of James, the word is a mirror that reflects. From 1 Peter, it's a seed that produces new life. Also from 1 Peter, it's milk that nourishes. From Psalms, we sang it today, it's a lamp that shines. From the prophet Jeremiah, it's a fire that consumes. Also from Jeremiah, it's a hammer that shatters. They're all very different metaphors trying to capture all of the power of these words. But what they do share is that they are words that go to work. They go to work in the world and they go to work in us collectively and individually. And as people who gather around these words, they give us a common vocabulary with which to talk with one another about the things that matter about God, about ourselves, about our place and our relationship to God and to the world. They tell us about ourselves. And the psalm reminds us today that you know, we can spend a lot of time looking outward and we can see all the distant wonders, but isn't it interesting how we pivot halfway through the psalm, that it's not enough as creatures of God to recognize that God is God and we are who we are. The psalmist 
will have none of that. The wonder of God is that God is at once a creator of splendors that dwarf us, that humble us, and there is an awareness that God is a very tender lover of each person in this world, calling each of us by name. What a wonderful word to hear. God knows how we exist and that we exist in such a way that we need guidance, reassurance, boundaries, coaxing, challenge to be able to live according to the grain of this great creation rather than trying to cut across it constantly. And so verse 11 for us turns very abruptly from the realities of the world we live in to the realities of our human life. That when we're honest and reflective, we realize that we live in a sinful and fallen world. And that we are participants in that world. And so the teaching and the instruction of God that we find in scripture is for us a way to coax us out of that life, or at least to a point of awareness of where we are. Because we cannot find our way in this world alone. There are two kinds of fault that the psalmist talks about. One, the psalmist talks about our hidden faults. The sort of mistakes and, and the sort of distance that we create that we don't even re realize that we're doing anymore. It's just part of our living. The things we don't do, the things we don't say because we live in this chronic and perpetual distraction in the world. Sometimes the words that we use that alienate others by what we say, our thoughtless actions, our carelessness, so often it happens unconsciously. We don't even know we do it until somebody points it out and says, do you know what you just said? Do you know what you just did? So much of this is woven into our lives. And yet there is more. Sometimes we willingly disregard what we know to be good, what we know to be right, and we know those sins as well. They can dominate us, and they can control us, and they're difficult to eradicate. The only hope that we have ultimately is that God would deliver us from just such a state. Keep back your servant, the psalmist cries. Do not let me fall into the clutches of these sins. That's the truth about our lives. And the scriptures are clear from beginning to end that that seems to be the way of it. But it is not the whole story. It is not the end of the story. It is not the final word. The scriptures also tell us about God. The psalm talks about a God who yearns to instruct and to guide and to reorder and realign us in relationship with God and in relationship with each other. And the great story of the scriptures, as I see it, or at least one of them, is that there is this tug of war between the human spirit and God's spirit. And it would not be enough for God's word to be an abstraction, an idea we bandy about that we can either just sort of choose to take on one day or forget the next. 
Instead, the scriptures reveal a powerful truth. And it's found in John chapter 1. That the word of God became flesh. Dwelt among us. And in knowing this one, the word revealed to us in flesh and in blood, in bone, and in action, in life, and in death, and yes, in resurrection, we can see and hear and know, I don't even know how that happened, that the word of God is something that is livable in our human experience. It moves from abstraction to a concrete embodied reality. At one point, Jesus is so frustrated in John's gospel with those who hear and don't seem to understand, who see him at work and do not receive him for who he is. And he says these words, the father who sent me has testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen that form, nor does his word dwell in you for you do not believe the one that was sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think in them they have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. The reason we gather around these words each and every Sunday, each and every time we gather as a community, is because of the conviction that these words somehow are filled full of meaning as we know the word of God made flesh. Jesus Christ, they point to him, they illustrate him, they in some way enhance our ability to know him and not just know him but follow him and not just follow him but to live in the way that he lived in this world. And it's a life we can't live on our own. As Christians, we do have the grace of this awareness that in Jesus Christ, our insufficiency is in many ways drawn close to an everlasting embrace with God. That when we fail, when we fall short, when in some way we live into that story that we know too well, that God in Christ has covered that sin and holds us close. There's a merciful understanding of the battle that we face. And there is grace, not just to forgive our shortcomings and to forgive our sins, but also to begin to overcome that sin. And that's the word that we need to hear. Even more, the word that we need to know. It's the word of God to me and to you. It's an everlasting word that will not fail even when in our frailty we do. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. If that is a love that you hunger for, 
if that is a relationship that in the midst of all of our transience you desire, if that is a word that fills the empty space you've been aware of for too long, then the step you can take is to receive it by receiving him. And by welcoming Jesus into your life and continuing to gather in this community, learning what it means to put that word into action in your life, then we will discover what Jesus was talking about, the salvation to eternal life, together. I want that for all of us, and I want it for each one of you. If you need to make that decision today, then as we respond, I encourage you in prayer to make it known. If you made a promise a long time ago and you set it down and you need to return to that promise now, I encourage you in our time of response to do so. If you need to take a step forward and join this congregation, be a part of the mission and ministry, and with your words say, I will, with Yates Baptist Church, then in your time of response, begin to make it so. As we sing our concluding hymn, I'll be at the front to receive you. If that's a decision you need to make known today, then I'll proudly present you. We'll welcome you, and we'll continue to walk together in faith and in trust that this word is true.